This morning I want to speak on one of my favorite texts from the book of Acts. We'll be in Acts 6, and I want to preach on this text because it's a reflection of where we are as a church, the transitions that we are facing as a church. And this text hopefully will be relevant and practical for us. Today we'll look at the church of Jerusalem and some of the problems that they had in their ministry and how they solved those problems. You know, the book of Acts is not just the history of the early church. It's our history. It's the history of Woodside Community Church. It's the history of the Baptist. There's not a single legitimate church that has ever existed in this world that was not a church plant of the Church of Jerusalem, of this church in Acts 6. That's what we're looking at, therefore, our history. We're looking at how our forebearers in the Christian faith encountered problems in their ministry and solved them. We're studying what God the Holy Spirit wanted us to know about this church and the difficulties that they encountered. So let's read the text of Scripture. I, I actually have it in your bulletin, but feel free to access it however you want, in print or electronically. I'll read it off of my notes. Um, Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Familiar verses. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we commit this time to you, Lord, that your word would go forth in the power of your spirit despite the weakness of the human messenger. Lord, give us insight into this text. Lord, I pray that your spirit would guide us into all truth, Lord. And I pray that we would be diligent to glean from this text and apply it not only in our own lives, but in our church body. We ask this all in Christ's name. I want to look at this text in four aspects or four points. We won't move through this text strictly verse by verse or chronologically, but primarily through the different groups of characters. So point number one, the widows. Point number two, the apostles. Point number three, the seven. Point number four, the church. Uh, so let's start with the widows. Verse one says that in those days, in what days? The days when the events of the previous chapter were happening. There's two things that you need to know for context. The context of chapter 4 is that you have believers in chapter 4 who have an excess of resources, such as houses and lands. And they are selling those things and laying the money at the feet of the apostles. They're committing as a body to take care of the needy and the vulnerable among them. Second thing you need to know is that in chapter 5, the apostles are arrested for preaching in the temple. They're released from prison through divine intervention. They go back to preaching in the temple. They're stopped again. They're brought before the Jewish council. That's when you get Peter saying that famous line, 
We ought to obey God rather than men. They're flogged and then they're released. You have to remember that context to understand this text, those two points. The church is sharing their resources and the apostles themselves are in a position where it's hard for them to manage what's going on in the ministry. And it's in those days that chapter 6 happens. In those days, the disciples were increasing in number, and a complaint arose by the Hellenists against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So the disciples are increasing in number, and a problem arises. You know, church growth is a good thing. In the last five or six years, we've had growth as a church. Our attendance has gone from an average of 75 to last week, I believe in the bulletin, it says it was 125 in the main service and about 25 more in kids and nursery. Our budget has grown. Our church budget 10 years ago was $160,000. The last year as a church, I believe we spent close to $300,000. Our staff has grown. The amount of space we use as a church has grown. The amount of people who regularly convene for church activities has grown. Growth is a good thing if it's real God-given growth. But with church growth, there's always the increased potential for conflict. There's not a growing church out there that doesn't have conflict and controversy at some level. And that's not always a bad thing because having a conflict gives us the opportunity to solve that conflict to the glory of God. There arose a complaint by the Hellenists against the Hebrews. Now, if you're using a King James Bible, it says the Grecians. And I want to clarify that this is not Greeks or Gentiles. This is not a matter of Gentiles versus Jews. The Church of Jerusalem at this point is all Jewish, Jewish Christian. Uh, we're not talking about different people groups here. We're talking about an aspect of cultural difference between two groups of Jewish Christians. Hebrews, we could think of them as people who maintained a traditional Hebrew identity, Jewish purists, separated and unassimilated into the world around them. The Hellenists, however, were Jews that were influenced by Greek culture. They spoke Greek, they adopted Greek culture, they knew how to navigate their way through Greek society while still being Jewish. Some preachers try to say that these groups are something like liberal and conservative, or rural and urban, or traditional and contemporary. And some nuance of those distinctions might be true of these groups, but I don't think those characterizations are actually helpful, because they're a modern and American way of classifying people that wouldn't have had the same relevance back then. The best way I can illustrate this for you is like this. I'm what would be considered a first-generation American. My parents were born in India. They came here, and me and my brothers were born in the United States. And despite the fact that we're 100% Indian, my brother did the DNA test, uh, when we get together with relatives, and it's found out that our language skills are minimal at best, and our taste in food and entertainment is largely influenced by our culture and not by our heritage. What people always say is, you are very Americanized. How many people have heard that before, right? Um, you're very Americanized. So that's the deal with the Hellenists. They are Hellenized Jews, Jews who have adopted Greek culture as a result of living in a Greek world. So we're talking about culture. Culture is different than ethnicity or religious affiliation. The complaint is this, the widows of the Hellenized Jews are being neglected in the daily distribution. What is this daily distribution? 
The context of chapter 4 is incredibly important here because that's where some of the disciples sell their resources and lay the money at the apostles' feet to meet the needs of the less fortunate and vulnerable. In Jewish society, the most vulnerable were often the widows, and this is the case in agrarian societies of the ancient world. The older women would be dependent on the work of their husbands, and if their husbands should predecease them, and then they were supported by the resources left behind by their husbands, if there were any. Uh, if not, they were supported by, um, they were cared for by their adult children or other relatives, and in some cases, from the Jewish religious communities. But in the situation where you became a Christian, a follower of Jesus of Nazareth, saying that he was the Messiah and that he died and rose again and was coming back, you would be ostracized from the Jewish religious community. And Jesus warned the disciples about this, that they would be put out of the synagogues. So this left widows who became Christians especially vulnerable. The church therefore pooled its resources to take care of people in those situations. Acts chapter 4 says, Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands and houses sold and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. We're not sure what exactly the daily distribution consisted of. It could have been a meal for the widows, since the apostles will consider it, in verse 2, serving tables. It's daily, so it leads me to believe that it's food and not necessarily money, if it's something for which people may have had to come back on a daily basis, but it's a distribution. It's not a meal. It doesn't call it something like fellowship or breaking bread together. Also, when the apostles call this ministry serving tables, it can have another meaning. The, the Greek word uh, that is translated table can be a table where you eat a meal, such as the disciples eating at the table during the Last Supper, or it can mean a table where business was transacted such as when Jesus turned over the tables of the money changers in the temple. Which is it here? Is it a business transaction or a meal? The text isn't specific, and I actually think it's a little bit of both. It's a distribution of food resources, which is why it needs to be available on a daily basis. And I think that there's an element of it being like a business transaction because it's something for which the church's monetary resources are used and there's an expectation of equity and fairness which is not happening, which is a problem that the apostles are going to address. Notice that the Hellenist widows who are being neglected are not the ones raising this complaint. It's the Hellenist Christians on behalf of their widows. See, the church has this ministry of food resources, let's say, and it regularly happens that the Hellenist widows show up and the distribution is over. Or when they show up, most of the resources are already given out. Or they're not given a sufficient amount. It's like the Hebrew women come and they get a big sack of grain to hold them over for a week, and the Hellenist women come and they're given like a little Ziploc baggie precisely enough for their next meal. Well, that's a problem. I do want to point out one thing, however. The church here does not have a general distribution ministry to the poor. This is a very specific ministry to widows of the church. Paul later instructs Timothy on ministry to the widows. 
Um, the widows, he says, can only be enrolled if they meet certain qualifications. They need to be part of the church. They must be a certain age. They must be in a certain life circumstance. The interpretation of this text is not that the church is to operate as a vehicle to cure all social ills, such as poverty and hunger and injustice. There's a lot of that thinking out there these days. And I believe that that idea cannot be substantiated from this text or from the New Testament as a whole. But let's get back to our widows and the daily distribution. You have to remember that people have sold houses and lands and their extra resources so that people can be taken care of in this church. So when it's found out that grandma goes to the daily distribution and all that she's given is a small amount of grain and it keeps happening over and over, meanwhile the Hebrew widows are taken care of, well, that's the problem. The Hebrew widows are getting preferential treatment while the Hellenist widows are getting prejudicial treatment. And this is wrong because everyone's paid into this system to alleviate the material needs of their fellow believers. In Acts chapter four, a Greek Jew named Joseph, AKA Barnabas, has sold his field and given the money to the apostles. And the ministry is not working the way that people expected. And so a complaint arose and it gets the attention of the apostles. Application point for you regarding complaining. Sometimes murmuring and complaining in the church is just entitled and immature. You've done it, I've done it, we've all done it. In the American church, there's sometimes this attitude that the church exists to serve my interests and minister to my comforts, as if I'm a consumer or a spectator, and there's grumbling and complaining when our expectations are not met. And that's wrong, and that kind of murmuring is sinful. The church will never be able to please people who have a heart of entitlement and grumbling and complaining. But there's sometimes when murmuring and complaining is an indicator of a legitimate problem. And you have to be able to discern that in a church. Here, the complaint of the Hellenists against the Hebrews is a legitimate one, and it gets the attention of the apostles. Let's think about the apostles now. And they can't show up at the food distribution every day and supervise. Remember what they're doing in chapter five. They're arrested, they're in prison, they're released, they preach in the temple again, they're brought before the council, they have to defend their actions, they're flogged, they're released. Do you think they even had time to think about how much grain is being distributed to what group of needy widows? No. Let's transition and look at the apostles now. Point number two. It says the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples in verse 2 and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer, to the ministry of the word. I want you to notice four things about the apostles. They understood their role. They understood their limitations. They understood their priorities and they understood their resources, their role. After the resurrection, the Lord Jesus had told the, 12, uh, the 11 apostles that they would testify of his resurrection in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria unto the uttermost parts of the world. The mission they had was that they were going to introduce the gospel to their known world in their lifetimes. There's two aspects of the apostles' ministry that we see early in the book of Acts. 
They have a ministry inside the church. Acts 2 says that the believers were baptized and they became devoted to the teaching of the apostles. Also, the apostles have a ministry outside the church, which is to evangelize and to defend the faith, which is what we see them doing in chapter 5 and facing persecution for it. Secondly, the apostles understood their limitations. The apostles say, it is not right that we give up preaching to serve tables. They understood that you can't be in two places at one time. Either they're going to supervise the distribution of the food to the widows, or they're going to be preaching in the temple and from house to house, but not both. The ministry that they had started to meet the needs of the widows was obviously a good and necessary one. But you know, sometimes you can start a program that is good and right and come to realize that you don't have the resources or the skills or the time and the ability to manage it. That's often some, something that we find in our lives and certainly in our church. So many ideas that we come up with are never implemented, sometimes implemented poorly, because the problem you're always going to run into is a lack of material resources, a lack of human capital, and a lack of skill. Always, always, always. And this is what the apostles are facing, their limitation. They can't do both. Third, the apostles understood their priorities. The apostles say it is not right, it is not appropriate, it is not suitable for us to give up preaching. We must devote ourselves to the ministry of the word and prayer, which is what the Lord has called them to. As Jesus told Peter, feed my sheep. As Jesus told them in Acts 1.8, you'll be witnesses to me, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, unto the uttermost parts of the earth. The people of the church had laid their money at the apostles' feet for this very ministry. But now a chapter later, the apostles are saying there's something more important that, that we have been tasked with. Well, what's more important than the care of the widows? How about preaching the gospel, making disciples? That's more important. This is obviously an important ministry, but what the apostles are saying is that there is something which is a higher priority for us in particular, the word and prayer. They're not saying, let's cancel this ministry. They're not going to cancel it. But they're saying, for us in particular, we've been tasked with something else. You have to understand something about preaching and prayer. It's spiritual work, it's intangible, and the results are often not immediate. Therefore, there is sometimes a temptation within churches and even among pastors to devalue the work of preaching and prayer when compared with other things. There are some churches who take an approach of let's lay low on preaching, let's just do impactful things in our community, let's start a food pantry, let's clean up neighborhood parks, that's how we're going to reach people. Likewise, there's churches and pastors who don't believe that preaching God's word can stand alone and accomplish the task God has ordained for it. So many churches try to spice up their preaching ministry to make it more experiential and memorable and impactful, whether it's including theatrics into the preaching or stylistically making it like a talk show format where people send in their questions and a pastor can sermonize about them off the cuff. There's this temptation among pastors to feel like every sermon has to be the most memorable and mind-blowing TED Talk, you know? There's churches who do that stuff and they call it preaching because just opening up the Bible on its own merit is seen as mundane and unimpactful. The apostles, however, have it correct. The work of preaching is important and the central labor of the church and its pastors. There's lots of churches that do good and important things but we must be careful to keep the main thing the main thing. The question to ask, I believe, is this. 
What is the relationship between the ministry of preaching the word and the ministry to the widows or other ministries of a church? There's Christians who think that the preaching of the word is just one among many random things churches do on a Sunday. That preaching is on par with everything else. Like, okay, we have our fellowship time here, then we have our singing time, then we have prayer, then we hear a sermon, then we collect some money. Like, it's just a bunch of random religious stuff with no rhyme or reason. Some churches actually function as though the ministry of the word is subservient to other ministries. There's a lot of that out there these days. Let me tell you how. There's this idea that you can't simply share the gospel with people. You need to do all kinds of projects and community engagements and cleaning up a park and doing an Easter egg hunt and buying people's stuff. And then maybe they'll see what a nice person you are and ask you about it. This is really what some churches do. I've seen it with my own eyes. I've seen it around here. This methodology of church planting that we're going to go outside of Starbucks and buy people frappuccinos and invite them to our Easter egg hunt. That's a real thing. That happens. And I'm sure you've heard stuff like this. Have you ever heard someone say, we just need to get out there and live the gospel? Let's be clear. You and I don't live the gospel. Christ has already lived the life and died the death in our behalf, which is the good news that we receive by faith. Have you ever heard someone say, you're the only Bible that some will ever read? If you and I are the only Bible that some will ever read, that's a tragedy. Put a Bible in their hands and witness to them. If you and I are the only Bible some will ever see, we're the corrupted version. Give them the word of God instead. People will observe your widow's ministry and your Easter egg ministry and your park cleaning ministry and your free Starbucks ministry all day long. And they're not going to get saved until you give them the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the only way people get saved. I want to be clear on what it means to be saved. So I'll give you the gospel in the middle of the sermon instead of at the end. The gospel is the good news that God forgives sinners. We are made to know and enjoy our God forever, to dwell with him and have fellowship with him. But you and I are sinners. We're sinners by nature and by our actions. Sin is all lawlessness and transgression of God's law. God says, thou shalt not. And we say, oh, yes, we will. Sin is an offense to God, and God has appointed a day when he will judge the living and the dead. And sinners will not be able to stand in God's judgment. All our lawless deeds that we have hidden from others and even deceived ourselves about will be found out in the day of judgment. God's word says that the wicked shall be turned into hell and all nations that forget their God. That's bad news. The Bible says, however, that though we are sinners, God in his love and mercy saves sinners. God the Father sent Jesus Christ, his son in human flesh, as a servant to live a perfect sinless life, to live in our behalf and to die on the cross for our sins. Christ committed no sin, scripture says, neither was any deceitfulness found in him. But in the divine plan of God, he died on the cross for our sins. Christ died, he was buried, and he rose again the third day. He ascended back to the Father in heaven, where he is preparing a place for his people. One of the most important questions ever asked in the Bible is when a man asks Paul, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. There is salvation in no other, it says in the book of Acts. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. 
God is gracious and merciful, and he will not despise anyone who truly comes to him in faith. He says, any who come to me, I will in no wise cast out. Repent, turn from your sins, turn from trusting yourself, and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's get back into our text. What is the relationship, therefore, between the ministry of the word and the ministry to the widows? Every ministry a church does, I believe, ought to be rooted in God's word. And God's word ought to be the goal of every ministry that we do as a church. Every ministry we do should be done in service of God's word. See, if the widows are destitute of their daily food, they're not going to be able to come to church to hear the preaching of the word. If the church can't demonstrate care for its own who have been ostracized from the Jewish community for the sake of Christ, the church is not being a good testimony, and people aren't going to come to hear the preaching of the word. The church can have a variety of ministries. The church can have events and fellowships and kids programs and a nursery and a seniors ministry and a student ministry and a music ministry, but all those ministries must be done in service of the word of God. I can keep going with this, but uh, let's go to the last point about the apostles. The apostles understood their resources. In this young church, in a time of persecution from the outside, with division starting from the inside, the apostles understood one of their greatest resources, the people of God, the church of God. The apostles put it on the church to solve this problem. They say in verse 3, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Secondly, the apostles understood their resources because they knew that within the body of the church there were going to be capable and qualified people who would be up to this task. So they say, pick out from among you. They understood the resources that they had right there in front of them. I want to point this out. When the apostles tell the church to pick out seven men, it's not just an arbitrary choice. In Greek, this word to pick is to make a careful inquiry to inspect and to examine. You're not picking them like when I go to Wendy's and I'm really hungry and I just randomly pick off stuff off the dollar menu, right? Like give me a spicy nuggets and a chili and a side salad, you know, give me one of everything. They're picking them out. Think about this, the way a decor savvy woman picks a paint color, right? Susan knows what I'm talking about. She just moved into her apartment. I've learned that there's not 50 shades of gray, as the movie says. There's like 300. Women especially, and, and I mean this as a compliment, are especially diligent in this. This is a skill I greatly appreciate. Getting samples, making the Pinterest portfolio, comparing the samples in all kinds of light. That's what the word means, to make a diligent examination into something. That's how you pick a deacon. That's the word that the apostles use. So let's move on to point number three and see the church in action. The church is entrusted with this decision. The church is pleased with the decision. The church executes upon this decision. As we said, the apostles didn't solve this problem themselves. They summon the church and they present the problem to the church. The apostles guide them with the proper principles for solving this problem. Pick others for this task, seven men. Why seven? I'm not sure there's a spiritual significance there, but practical. It's likely that the number of widows they were dealing with necessitated seven men. Also, it's an odd number because if this group of seven would ever need to decide something, there would be a tiebreaker. Um, the apostles 
they tell them what kind of men to pick out or elect for this role. Men full of wisdom and the Holy Spirit and of good reputation. We'll talk about that when we talk about the seven. See, the apostles who are functioning as the pastors of the church, they tell the church, you're going to solve this problem. We're going to guide you. We're going to tell you how to solve this problem. We're going to give you the principles that you need. We're going to equip you. But it's on you to make this decision and solve this problem. The apostles trusted the church, and the apostles entrusted this decision to the church. When you're part of a church, you're not a spectator of an event or a consumer of a product. That's what some people want. They want a church experience where the pastors do everything, make all the decisions, put on a performance, and they get to come in and consume a product for 60 minutes, and that's not the function of a New Testament church. Point of application, why do we have business meetings in our church? You know, some people hate business meetings. They think it's worldly and secular to even call it a business meeting. But there is a time and a place and a pattern in the New Testament to do the business of the church, to administrate the church, to operate the church, to finance the church. Baptist churches are congregational in their government. We believe that the pattern of the New Testament is that the congregation holds decision-making authority. We believe that the congregation is tasked with the ministry. It's the role of the pastor to equip the church to do ministry. You know, in Catholic churches, they don't have congregational business meetings, at least not the way that we do. Many other Protestant denominations don't either. In any church where you have a strong class distinction between the clergy and the congregation, you won't have congregational business meetings. Baptist churches, however, are congregational. Some people think that's patterned after the American system of democracy. That's not true. Baptist churches are congregational because we believe every believer is a priest before God. Catholic churches don't believe in that. They don't have congregational business meetings. Also, Baptist churches believe in saved church membership. You must be born again and examined in order to be part of this Baptist church. Catholic churches don't believe in that. They don't even have the same doctrine of being born again as we do. In many other Protestant churches, you don't have saved church membership. Because if you can baptize a baby in the hope that they will be saved later in, in life, but they're a full member of the church, you cannot entrust your church to congregational government. Think about that. But Baptist churches are congregational, and that's what we see here. That's the pattern that we see throughout the book of Acts. There's no more making decisions by the casting of lots as there was in Acts chapter 1 to select Matthias to be the replacement of Judas. No, it's done by, by the congregation. The congregation is tasked with picking seven men. Congregational government is not the idea that everyone has their own random agendas and opinions for the direction of the church, and then we get together, we just hash it out in a business meeting. No, rather, congregational government is about every believer who is a priest before God, getting together and determining what would God have us to do? What does God want for his church? Baptist churches have congregational authority, but they have leading and guidance from ordained pastors. Pastors equip the congregation to do ministry, as the apostles did for the church of Jerusalem. And it's beautiful when this process works correctly. The guidance of the apostles pleased the church, it says. 
Not only did the pastors trust this church, but the church also trusted its pastors. There's a problem in this church and it's dealt with out in the open. Everything is laid out there. It's transparent. The apostles tell, tell the church how to solve it. And, when the, and we see that the church affirms the guidance and the direction of the apostles and then they act on it by selecting seven men. So let's go to point number four and talk about the seven. These seven men are what I would, what I would call the proto-deacons, like the prototype of what would become the office of the deacon, which is codified for us by Paul in 1 Timothy 3. Verse 3 of this passage says, says, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. So this is our, our last point. I'll make closing remarks after this, but we're going to look at their qualifications, the men themselves, and their role, uh, and their ordination. So, um, and I'll try to make application along the way. While the qualifications for the deacons are more specific in 1 Timothy 3, the passage that we read this morning, they can all be encapsulated in the three broad qualifications that the apostles give to the congregation here. Good reputation, full of the spirit, full of wisdom. A good reputation is important in this role because there's money involved. You know, there's nothing that will divide churches and families like a sense of not being able to trust one another with resources. Then there's the care of the vulnerable. There are the widows that depend on this ministry and you don't want to appoint someone who isn't going to rise to the occasion and then people are going to be left out there hanging on a ministry that they depend on. Then this ministry is already under a cloud of some cultural division and suspicion. If this, minist if this ministry is not administrated properly, trust is not going to be restored and the division is going to get worse. So they need those who are trustworthy and reliable, those full of the Holy Spirit, someone who's controlled by God through his word in whom the spirit of God is evidencing spiritual fruit and those full of wisdom, those that have skill in the execution of the task, that have skill with people that can foresee and navigate problems and controversy to arrive at the most equitable and godly solutions. The qualification for the office of deacon, I want you to notice, is incredibly high. Someone needs to be more highly qualified to be a deacon in the New Testament church than they do to be the president of the United States. Is that not true? Look at these men themselves. Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. They set them before the apostles and they pray, lay hands on them. Stephen, Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicolaus. You'll notice that these are all Greek names. To administrate this ministry fairly, Hellenistic Christians are put in charge of it. And Stephen, the text singles him out. It's emphasized that he's a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost. Stephen is emphasized because the whole next chapter is going to be about him. And then we're going to see Philip in Acts chapter 8 explaining God's word to the Ethiopian eunuch. These were men who themselves understood the priority of the gospel. Then let's look at their role. I want to direct your attention to something the apostles say about this role in verse 2. They say, it is not right that we give up preaching in order to serve tables. Almost sounds like being a waiter, right? You know, being a waiter or working in the service sector is considered low work. It's kind of like a job that you get part-time in high school 
serving tables. When you read it in English, it almost sounds like an insult, like they're downplaying the role of the deacons. That's not, not what they're doing. They refer to their own work in verse number three as the ministry of the word, essentially saying, we're serving the word of God. So the apostles are saying, we need people to serve the material resources, but we're going to serve the spiritual resources. But when you read it in English, it almost sounds like they're saying, hey, we're up here, we preach God's word, and they're just down there serving tables. That's, that's wrong. Um, but there's some people who have that wrong view of the office of the deacon. It's like, I, I don't want that. It's all this pointless stuff, dealing with the poor, the widows, calling on people in the hospital, that sort of thing. It's just serving tables. It's not glamorous. It's not upfront. It's not in the limelight. I've got news for you, though. Every ministry in Christ's church is just serving tables. If you're on the nursery rotation and you give those parents a breather for 60 minutes to listen to a sermon, you're serving tables. If you help to set up and clean up for church dinners and business meetings, you're serving tables, quite literally. If you, if you count offering, you're serving tables. If you pick up an elderly person for church in your vehicle, you're serving tables. Anything you do for the benefit of God's people, you're serving tables. Let's apply this broadly. Think not just about the office of the deacons. The deacons are chosen as visible servants. They're the exemplary servants. But all of us are called to serve. All the work you do for God's church in his name is essentially the work of a servant. Is it not? Is that not the only kind of work that God desires among his people? This doesn't sit well with Americans. We're not about that life. We're all about, I can't work unless I have a title. On the TV show, The Office, there's this running joke about whether one of the characters is the assistant regional manager or he's the assistant to the regional manager. Sometimes you see churches doing stuff like this, like caught up with a position, a title. Like, is this person the assistant Sunday school treasurer or the assistant to the Sunday school treasurer? You know, that's a real thing, by the way. I, I didn't make that up. For years, we would just go down a list of obsolete titles and appoint people to them so that they would have a position. Here's the title that God's word offers, servant, serving tables. And that is a good title, my friends. And some of you, I want to encourage you that you wear that honorably. I see the way some of you serve. When we have a business meeting or church dinner, you're always helping those who have a hard time with sight and mobility among us. Some of you, you won't sit down and enjoy your own meal until you've served Maribel and Tony or Carl. If he's here, some of you will wrangle pastor's kids so Melissa can get a break. That's serving of tables. And it happens all the time in this church. And you don't do it to be noticed. But I want to tell you on the authority of God's word that even if nobody notices you serving tables, God notices. For scripture says, that God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love that you have shown to his name in serving the saints. God will not forget anything that you have done to honor his name serving his people. God notices your service, even if nobody else does, even if you don't have a title. The role of these men is to administrate the ministry to the widows, to make sure it's fair, to restore trust in the ministry. The church has a problem and one of their important ministries is failing and it's causing division and distrust in the church. Part of the role of these men in serving tables is to restore confidence in the ministry. The, the church in chapter four, they've given their hard earned resources 
And how do you restore confidence in the ministry? Well, you do it by appointing these qualified men. Here's an application about ministry and money that I believe it's important for us all to understand. When a church handles resources poorly, lacking transparency, when it blows the budget regularly, when it can't live within its means, when it creates fake budgets like the government does, then people lose confidence in the church. They lose confidence in the ministry. They won't give their hard-earned money to that sort of thing. Are people, if the ministry to the widows is failing, are people going to sell their extra resources and lay it at the apostles' feet? No. Conversely, if a church has transparency and accountability, when your budgets are straightforward and accurate, and the church is strict with their money, people will actually give more generously because they have confidence in the church. That's always going to be true, and you could take that to the bank quite literally. Side note, Stephen. Stephen is listed as the first deacon of the church, and in the next chapter, he gives the longest and most profound sermon in the book of Acts. This was a man who was mighty in the scriptures. Stephen dies as the first martyr of the church. You know, after Jesus ascended back to heaven unto the Father, scripture refers to him as seated at the right hand of God, all over the New Testament, sitting or seated at God's right hand. The only time scripture ever tells us that Christ stands up at God's right hand instead of sitting down is when Stephen is being put to death. Scripture says that Stephen gazed up into the heavens in chapter 7 of Acts and saw the glory of God and of Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Christ himself stands up at the death of his servant, Stephen, the first deacon of the church. The office and role of deacon is that of serving tables, but my friends, let us not downplay that ministry. Finally, the deacons are ordained. The church chooses, the pastors ordain and appoint. Ordination is the process by which these men uh, are visibly installed into their office. It's done with prayer to consecrate or set them apart. At ordination, someone is given their orders in a public way. They know before God and the church what they are responsible for, and the church knows what they're responsible for. The apostles symbolically lay hands on them. So that's the New Testament pattern. The church chooses and the pastor is ordained. And I want to tell you that as a church, we will be called upon eventually to pattern our church more and more like we see in the New Testament. And that includes not only the implementation of the office of the deacon, but also a culture where we serve one another. Remember the words of Philippians chapter 2, that Christ came to be a servant. At his last night with the disciples, he takes off his outer garment and he washes their feet. The Son of God, he washes the feet of the disciples. And he says to them, you call me Lord and Master, and you do rightly, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have done this to you, you ought to do it for one another. We serve him through serving one another because he has first served us. And as we close really quickly, I want you to notice the result of this. The word of God continued to increase. When a church is rightly ordered and rightly administrated and the leadership or the pastors are doing the right thing and there's right people, examined people who are in charge of the ministries and the resources of the church, what happens? The word of God continues to increase. Remember how I said every ministry is in service of the word of God. The word of God continues to increase. The number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And here 
is the real kicker. A great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Jewish priests who have experience in serving in the temple, the leaders of the Jewish faith, the same types who in chapter 5 are persecuting the apostles, the, the Jewish council, well, the priests are becoming obedient to the faith. That, that's a wonderful thing. That's a marvelous thing. That, that is a people group. And, and I believe that, that that's the conclusion because what we're supposed to draw from that is that this happened as a result of them solving that problem. So God puts problems in the path of a church so that we may solve them for his glory. Here, the problem is solved through the implementation of servants in the church. Let's pray. Well, gracious God, so much more could be said to do justice uh, to this text, Lord. This text is inexhaustible, Lord. Uh, and Lord, I, I'm unable to do it justice in 46 minutes. I pray that the, that the Holy Spirit take it and use it in the lives of your people. Equip us as individuals and equip us as a church to be ordered according to the pattern that we see in the Bible, Lord. And may that uh, enable us to keep the main thing the main thing in this church. I ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.